a podcast that investigates the experience of self, the events that have shaped our world, the people that we have become, by focusing on the person first. What's your earliest memory of someone who was good at life? Someone who was good at life? That's a difficult question. I, probably my earliest memory of someone who was good at life was my grandfather, um, who, I didn't know this until much later, had actually been effectively a spy during the Second World War. And I, I think he spoke something like 16 languages. He was Danish. Wow. Um, and he moved to the UK. They, him and his brother, or both his brothers, joined the Royal Air Force, and he ended up in, in intelligence. And when I was a, a child, they had retired from Germany, where he served, I think, in some pseudo-military intelligence capacity until about 1977, and retired back to Ainsdale uh, on the coast of Merseyside. And um, we'd go walking, my sister and I would go walking with him in the mornings, dog walking, and he would tell these shaggy dog stories, and if we were there for a week, he would make the story last a week, so we'd have to go walking with him every morning and every evening. And he... He just seemed uh, very complete, and I didn't understand what he was doing. With his retirement, uh, he always had the latest computer equipment, which in the late 70s, early 80s wasn't much. But I remember going into his study once, and he was translating a Russian document about tanks. And as a six-year-old boy or whatever I was, it didn't mean anything to me. And it was only years later, of course, he realised that he was continuing with his uh, translation work for... Somewhere, someone in the, in the British infrastructure. Wow. And um, he died in 1988 when I was 15. Oh. And I was, so I was too young to have gone to him and said, tell me everything yeah. Yeah. that happened and everything that you did with your life. And unfortunately, most of his records are still sealed. And his wow. son, my uncle, has been trying to get them unsealed. They're sealed, I think, for another 20 years or something like that. Gosh. But he... I suppose I have a slightly mythical... Um, memory of him because as a, as a child of course you look at your uh, the hierarchy of your family and assuming it's a happy family yeah. you tend to put people on pedestals sure so what I, what I knew about him as a, as, a, as a small as a young child and then the legend which I have sort of created in my mind about him he's somebody who definitely um, I think succeeded at life or was good at life yeah um, from that measure that, 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 that's an interesting word you use um, he felt complete did he did he kind of convey a sense of satisfaction and he didn't want for anything else? Did he feel... Is that how you, why you use that word? I think, I think so. Um, it's a difficult one to answer, of course, because your, your measures of... Um, I was going to say authority figures, but perhaps that's not quite, quite the, the right word. Your, your measures of, of adults when you're a child um, are very, very different because they're much simpler than the measures yeah. that we that we, we, we measure people by when we're, when we're adults ourselves. Yeah. He had four children. He lived in what at the time was, to me, a big house. They had dogs. They walked on the beach. Yeah. He, he didn't talk about the war, or despite his uh, significant contribution to it. Um, and he did seem to have a sense of, of peace and calm about him. Yeah. And that clearly can't have been the case, because he was human, and none of us is... Is, is as simple as that. But maybe you reach a certain point in life and you're just content with your lot. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not... <laughs> I'm sure we all go through days where we feel that and other days where we feel less so. Well, how, how, how do you feel? 
Like, again, it's on a day-to-day -day basis. <laughs> I, I strive for contentment because um, I have four children and a dog, um, and I'm very lucky. And I, I'm, I'm very blessed, I'm very fortunate by the majority of measures that we have as a society, a global society or in the Western Hemisphere as well. Um, I think I put myself under a lot of pressure, uh, particularly in my professional life. I want to be, I, I think I strive for perfection, if I'm honest, and striving for perfection ultimately makes you disappointed because it's unattainable. So I'm never quite as content as I perhaps might be. I don't tend to reflect on my successes. Mm. I don't tend to look at photographs of the past. I don't tend to talk about things that I have done, which other people go, wow, that's amazing. God, you should you know, wear a T-shirt, get a baseball hat, put it on your Facebook page. Yeah. I don't do that because they're in the past and they're just a step towards some type of attainable, or sorry, unattainable finishing line, which I'm never going to reach. So... <laughs> that's interesting. It's a, it's a tough question to... To answer, there are moments when I go out on a Sunday morning with the family, walking with my four children and the dog and my wife, and regardless of the weather, just the, the, the beauty of being together as a family unit, yeah. those, those moments of, of contentment, those are very special. Yeah. And those are the things that I really cling on to, yeah. because they really should define our, our lives. Those are the things that are important. Yeah. But if you had them all the time they wouldn't maybe have those moments. No, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a funny thing. Um, I've been on three trips in the last three weeks to various countries, and one of my children asked me what the best thing about travelling was for work. And I thought about it just for a moment, and I said, coming home. Oh, that's nice. And it's... Obviously, there's lots of wonderful things, meeting new people, yeah. having your points of view challenged, seeing other bits of the world, etc., etc., etc. And to your point, I wouldn't have the magic of coming home if I didn't go through that week of being away on the yeah. other side of the world or wherever it is. Yeah. But it really is that special. Yeah. That moment when you open the front door and you get bumped yeah. by four children and a dog. Yeah, I'm imagining it now, as you, <laughs> as you say. It sounds great. Yeah. Um, you said perfection, but by whose measure? Yours or other people's or a combination? I think it's mine. Um, I think it's mine. I don't... So, yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not put under any pressure by anybody, I don't think, other than my perceived expectations of society, my family, my colleagues, my friends. I, I'm not... I, I don't consider myself particularly financially driven. Mm. But then I remember doing a, 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 probably a Myers-Briggs test when I was about 15 or 16, mm. and it basically came out saying that I had absolutely no soul... <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was purely financially driven. Um, but I'm not sure that's necessarily true. I don't think that's been borne out in my professional life. Um, and I think there are certain points in my career when I've had moments of success and I've felt to myself, that's as good as it could have been. And, and it's just... It's like, it's like the coming home thing. It's just a moment of magic yeah. where you put... Um, uh, we, to give you an example, we were um, some years ago. Uh, I was doing some work for a client, and we'd been commissioned to make a series of, t of twelve films. And they'd basically just given us an open brief and sent us off for six months. Oh. And so we came back and we presented in a boardroom and put uh, one of these um, two-minute, beautifully shot, high-definition films on the wall. And the room was silent, and they were 
stunned because it was perfect. It was exactly what they'd oh, hoped for, exactly perfect. what they'd wanted. And we'd fulfilled all of their expectations. And moments like that in your, in your life or your career are almost impossible to emulate because it was, the, it was the confluence of a number of different factors. We had the budgets we needed, we had the time we needed, we had the creative scope we needed, yeah. we had the freedom to do what we wanted. And we just, we, I mean, it was a team of us, just nailed it. But you nailed and, it, yeah, yeah. And it's those... Is that perfection? I don't know. I, you don't reflect on it at the time as perfection as such. It's just a sense of enormous satisfaction and, you know, a smile and a handshake and on you go with your life. Yeah. Um, That's got to be a similar reaction to what an artist might feel writing a song and having people either sing it back or react to it or a, a poem that kind of makes people stop in their tracks or, you know, burst into tears or something. But like, I suppose it depends on the individual, doesn't it? There's a... The, 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 there's a there's a performance which I must have watched a dozen times on YouTube of Robbie Williams at um, Nebworth in probably 10 or 12 years ago now um, singing Angels and yeah. apparently there was a crowd of 250,000 people and it's the most astonishing performance of 200, a quarter of a million people singing Angels back to him yeah. and I think there's an incredible sadness about that performance because I look at the man and every time I watch it I think some, and somewhere in his soul he knows that he has reached the absolute zenith of his life. He will never stand on as high a mountain as he has at that moment. Whether he knew it or not, I look at it and I recognise it, and he must know it. It's an extraordinary thing. And I don't know, to your point, do, do I suppose it depends on the individuals, do poets or musicians or artists recognise perfection, or, or do, they, do they achieve everything they want to achieve? And if you did achieve that in a piece of work, wouldn't you never go back to the canvas again? <laughs> Yeah, I think this is a really this is a really interesting point. So um, you have to start out with what did the artist intend, and what do they get out of their process? I, from my perspective, if I write a piece of music, I've got to the stage now where I'll write it and discard it. That changed though recently because a, a successful musician friend of mine said, "You've just got to finish this stuff, publish it, and ignore it." He said, "You've got a hundred things un- unfinished." He said, and then you can let them all go. And uh, I got to, um, I've interviewed a few people on this podcast, and one of them was Nick Batt. So Nick was part of the team DNA that did the remix for Tom's Diner. Yes. Now, that's everyone, everyone talks about that moment, that song. It's still enduring. It's still a bloody brilliant track. Yeah. Um, so many, and it's very unique still in its own sense. Um, and he's just abandoned you know, that thing. He's like, yeah, he, he likes it for what it was, but he doesn't recognise to a degree, I hope I'm not misquoting him here, that that was a different person then. Um, but it must be funny, you know, where people will meet you and you're in your 40s, 50s, you know, 60s or whatever, and they're talking about something you did. And I asked him, how did you put that song together? And he was like, it was really basic. It wasn't the best equipment. It was a couple of, you know, digital racks and things like that. And everyone's assuming it's just like this glorious synth cave that he did it in. And he said, you know, it was just we just banged it, <laughs> we just knocked it out really quickly. It was good, and we just moved on, and that's it. I find that really interesting. Like, for that person in that moment, if that ends up being a definition of them in their career or on their Wikipedia page, like, I'm sure that thing about Robbie's on his Wikipedia page, you know, because the, the Oasis Nebworth thing was a really big one as well. Yes. There's, there's seminal moments in some people's career, isn't there, when they play to a certain... And it's, they're at the, you know, like you say, their zenith. That was the, the 90s for Blur and Oasis. You know, that was their moment. Yeah. And they'll probably never get back to that. But that's, that was presumably not engineered. No one knew no. 
The exactly. crowd didn't know, the organisers didn't know, the band didn't know. That's it, yeah. it, There's a context to it, a much That's wider it, yeah. context, which just happens to create a, yeah. um, a crossroads, which all coming together at the right time. I think the music thing, thing's really interesting, and, and, and writing a book, uh, and it, I, I've sat down and started a dozen books, none of which I've managed to finish. And whatever, your, whatever one's definition of a great book is or was, it's interesting to consider the, the motivation of the author at that time. Did they just sit down and go, right, I'm going to start writing a book today? Yeah. And it turns out to be some great work of literature. Yeah. Um, and and I, I don't know, I don't know how, how important it is that great art is driven by great sentiment, or if it's just to, you know, to your, your <laughs> point, you sit down and go, ah, that's an interesting track, I'd quite like to, yeah. to put a different beat on it and see where it goes. Does yeah. it matter? I'm not sure it does. I don't think it does. I think um, there's a... I've used it before, I think, there's a Stanley Kubrick quote, and he's like, I don't think any artist creates anything other than they, that's what they do at rest. It's like, you like the smell of... I think he said you like the smell of celluloid. That gets you into films, maybe. And then you make films and what have yeah. you. And then you do it on repetition and you're good at something. Any kind of mechanism by which you can create in the world is a valid one, right? It, you know, and if you spend your time in a certain area or amongst those things, you use that medium, that's it. You know, and I kind of... Anyone who's really honest with... I don't know... You do talk to people, and I, I feel like there's something missing sometimes when I've interviewed um, artists and they um, have a real big agenda. I'm like, I don't know if you even knew it was going to be that special. Do you know what I mean? And it's still everyone's opinion now. Like, so art that's created at any point in, period, in time, sometimes it's recognised years later as being fantastic. Sometimes they're not famous in their time. Yes. That didn't stop some artists. They just create, still created in their time, you know what I mean? No, absolutely. It doesn't invalidate the experience at all. But I suppose that from a certain point of view, your, your demeanour, the way you treat other people on a day-to-day -day basis, if you were to take that, your personality, and put it into musical words or paint uh, and move people in whichever direction or whichever, whichever emotion they are moved by that particular yeah. medium, um, it, it's, a, it's, it's almost a physical or, or, um, or, or visual representation of your own, the way you treat other people. So I don't, what am I trying to say here? I suppose that as a non-artist or as a, as a frustrated creative person who started lots of projects and seems unable to finish them, <laughs> I suppose that I find myself more inclined to try and uh, it, it, to try and move people through the, the medium of my behaviour and my demeanour because I'm far more aware of how much that affects people than I have been in the past because yeah. I've always been so angry about so many things and there's so many people over the years have um, have uh, cautioned me about the impact I have on other people and I've always taken that as uh, uh, with surprise because I think well, why do anyone care about my feelings about X Y and Z. Yeah, Any, I don't care about anybody else's feelings. <laughs> so, so I, we're all shouting at the sky. Yeah, yeah, and and um, and I think that uh, that maybe, but maybe that's it. Maybe the 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 effortlessness, if that's the right word. I'm sure that's not a fair word to 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 use as a label on any artist's work. But if they're willing or capable of just taking that that sense, whatever they're feeling at any particular moment and and somehow capturing it in music or lyrics yeah, or poetry yeah. or maybe that's a obviously there's a huge amount of in, inherent talent required but maybe it's a discipline as well to just channel it in a particular direction maybe yeah. that's what i'm lacking i just I'm too <laughs> lazy to do it how has you talked about things unfinished how has failure shaped you 
Oh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the yin and yang of my perfectionism. I'm totally driven by my fear of failure. Absolutely. I think I'm going to be fired every day. <laughs> um, Only buy one-way ticket every day. That's right. Um, I've, I've always had this sense that, going back to my, my reflections on my contentment of my family life at home, I've always had this sense that somebody's going to turn up on my doorstep with a clipboard one day and say, oh, no, I'm, I'm totally sorry, this life isn't yours. This is a mistake. <laughs> And I would like a Douglas Adams sort of happily thing. pack my bag to say, oh, it's fair enough. Really. Yeah. Um, so I think my fear of failure, my fear of, is of that, being Can I jump out, in on that? Is that because you've achieved more than you thought you, you might do, kind of, you know, year on year? Is that that imposter syndrome thing? A lot of people experience that. Is that because your life's better than you thought? I don't know. I don't know. I think maybe because I've always... I suppose I've had heroes... In my life, people like my grandfather, I think I put my father on a pedestal when I was younger, my sister's a very high achiever, and I look around at lots of my um, professional peers, and I, I do tend to put them on, on pedestals, certain individuals that I know. I'm not jealous of them, quite the opposite, I suppose I'm almost proud to know them and be associated with them. Not in a groupy sense, but to, um, to spend time with them and listen to them and learn from them and contribute to the debate in some way. And um, it, it's an interesting thing. When I started doing public speaking at events, and I'm sure that a lot of people came to the events because of the brand I was representing at the time, um, rather than to hear me. But then subsequently, people would con- be very complimentary about my, my willingness and ability to speak and to tell stories and to, to um, keep an audience happy. And I always just assumed that that was something that everybody could do. And I, every time I'm on the stage doing those type of things, I do feel like an imposter. Yeah. Um, and so I do put myself under a lot of pressure to be the very best I can be, which I suppose drives me towards this unattainable desire to be perfect, <laughs> to be the very best. I, when, I, when I am doing well, any piece of work, really, I want it to be absolutely 10 out of 10 every time. And I think that striving for anything less is not worth bothering for. And, and that's... It's quite self-destructive, really. It's so difficult when it's open to so many different interpretations, though, isn't it? It's almost like you are setting yourself up for a failure. Yeah, absolutely. And it's almost like you... Um, I'm trying to think of like a, something caught in a gravitational spin. It, yeah. it feeds itself, right? Yeah. It's like a Mobius strip. Right, it, it's yeah. Not, it's not healthy at all. I know it's not healthy. <laughs> well, healthy in what way? Well, because I think it takes you to some very dark places. Because if you're, if you're failing by my measures... So if you're... I'm not saying that I achieve 10 out of 10 by any stretch of the imagination. That would be terribly arrogant of me. But if you're aspiring to 10 out of 10 and you self-mark on whatever level, sure, a, a 6 or a 7, and everyone else goes, yeah, it was fine, you're, because you haven't attained the heights that you were aspiring to, you have, by that measure, failed. Yeah. And therefore, it can take. I find it can make me very miserable, very self-reflective. Um, I dwell on my perceived failures far too much. Conversations that haven't gone quite as well as I had hoped, I'll probably leave this and spend the rest of the day worrying I can't about imagine it. conversations not going well with you. You seem really self-aware and, and happy. I think that, but the self-awareness is, is because I'm worried all the time. I'm, I'm worried about, uh, about getting it wrong and, uh, and about being fired or having my life taken away from me by the man with the clipboard. So are you, it sounds like you're overshooting to rest on to end on as close to perfection as you can. Not deliberately. No. I'm <laughs> a head case, that's what it is. I need therapy. <laughs> okay, um, I'm, I'm actually going to... Because you talked about dark places, um, and this is a bit of a curveball, curve but do you think about... Um, what's your relationship with death? <laughs> My relationship with death. 
<laughs> I think denial is probably... Yeah? Um, do you not think about it? Um, I think I do, but I think I tend to kick that one down the road. I don't dwell on it. I think any time I come into conflict with it or possibility of it, I tend to brush it off. I'm terrible at funerals. I just go to pieces completely. Oh, really? I cannot... I, I can't deal with the intensity of emotion, and I don't know what it is. I, I, I'd run a mile. It's, it's the, for me, it's the inability of control. Yes. You know I mean, like, oh, my God, we, there's nothing you can do. No. That's quite scary. Yes, I think you're right. Maybe it's... Oh, that's a tough one. Um, my relationship with death. See, even now, I, I can't talk about it because I simply don't... I don't consider it, I don't think about it. Gosh. And there's an inevitability to it, obviously. And, um, yeah, I'll have to come back to you on that one, I'm afraid. Really? I'll turn to that one later in the... I, I don't think this is healthy. I've got to a stage where I just ride it like a reset switch. Bang, bang, bang. Every time I'm feeling any stress, I just zoom out from the world, look at the planet, look at the timeline of the, what you know about the universe, look at me and go, this is all pointless. Yeah, <laughs> perhaps. But then... Doesn't mean anything, the, man. The, the, it goes back to contentment, though, doesn't it? Because if you can... Your life is what you're living now. And so if this was it, if, you know, I walk out and get hit by a bus, God willing, I won't happen. But um, I think you have to enjoy and live every single day or moment as much as you can. And maybe that's why I don't tend to reflect on things in the past so much. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's why I'm so bad at planning anything. I don't plan for the future particularly. Well, that's, I, I think that's quite a good thing. In, in, in a way, what I mean by that is some people live so eternally in the future that they don't you know, smell the roses and they're not living in a, a place where they can appreciate it now. Yeah. You know? It's important to plan for some things, I guess, for the future. I suppose so. Well, obviously, it must be. Um, <laughs> I know what I'm doing at lunchtime. Does that count? <laughs> Um, as happiness and success run concurrently in your life? Uh, concurrently, yes, but I'm not sure they're directly linked. They're probably more directly linked than I would like to admit. I've always been a romantic. I believe um, in truth that we can live on love and air, um, much to my wife's um, <laughs> Uh, frustration. Get a job. Uh, yeah, we can exactly. live on living here. Uh, well, I got my first job, my first proper job, basically, because the lady who's now my wife said, if you don't get a job, we're done. Really? Yeah. So I replied to an ad in the back of The Guardian, which I thought was a sales job. Yeah. Um, and I went to an interview, came up to London for an interview with a chap called Steve Hyde, um, who's still doing that kind of thing. And we went to the Landmark Hotel. Yeah to have this interview, which I thought was for a sales job. Gosh. It actually turned out to be for a media agency, uh -huh. uh, John Ailings. And halfway through the interview, Steve leant over and rather conspiratorially said to me, stand up and punch the man standing behind you. And I thought, oh, Christ, this is one of those, you know, how many things on a golf ball are there? Or <laughs> Did you just swing blindly behind no, you? No, <laughs> I, I said, I'm sorry, what? And he said, there's a man behind you, I want you to stand up and punch him. And... I, I sort of nervously stood up and turned around, and there was Chris Eubank standing behind me, and Steve was just winding me up. Um, and um, yeah, so so did Chris Eubank acknowledge you, or was he no, turned away? No, of course not. <laughs> um, it was just one of those things. Anyway, so I, I um, 
<laughs> I got this job. Uh, How old were you, Guy? I was 26 when I got that job, so it was quite late. I didn't graduate till I was 24. Oh, right. Because um, I'd gone to Hong Kong after I left school. To, I was a yacht engineer in Hong Kong, an apprentice yacht engineer. Yeah. Um, and came back and spent four years at university buggering around. And What did you study? Uh, I did a year of Arabic, and then I dropped the language and did Arab studies for three yeah. years. Yeah. Let's, leave. Let's, not, let's not go there. Um, Part two. Anyway, so yeah, I got this, this job, came to London, um, and it was quite, I suppose it was quite romantic, really. Uh, I lived in, uh, in Putney, and my wife lived in Wandsworth Town, and she would go to the office very, very early. So this is she, uh, before we were married, obviously. So I would, she would go get like a 7.30 in the morning train into London. So the only way I could see her every day would be get on the same train one stop earlier, and we'd meet on the train and have maybe 15 or 20 minutes on the train together before we went to our respective jobs. Oh, and that's nice. what we did for a couple of years, um, to see each other every morning. And it was quite, it was lovely. And so I would, you know, my, the first few years of my career, I'd be in the office by 7.30, 7.45, two hours before most of my colleagues, just smashing it. Yeah. And, um, and, and took to it like a duck to water, which was a complete surprise to me. So my, my whole career through media and advertising has been driven really by... Um, my girlfriend at the time saying, get a job or yeah. get through. Did she save you a seat on the train? <laughs> it was a long time ago. I think back then they still had, uh, they still had seats on trains oh, right. and, and steam engines and things like that. <laughs> Little trolleys that they pushed along. Yeah. Um, so do you think you've need... You've, it sounds like you do. <laughs> need dis- dissatisfaction in your life. You use that, right, dissatisfaction as part of the engine to fuel your achievements, right? Yes. Yeah. I think it's my own sense of inadequacy that drives me to do these things. Um, I've done two Ironman races, and both of those, I have stood on the bank of the river before the swim thinking, I don't belong here. <laughs> uh, everyone else here is much better than me, much faster than me. To be fair, they are, were much faster than me. Yeah. Um, and I think it's because I have always suffered so badly from this imposter syndrome. This is a recurring theme. This is going to sound like I'm a complete loony. Um, that I suppose that I've, on an almost daily basis, I'm trying to do more than the people around me in order to yeah. get myself, get my own sense of self-worth to a level where I feel I can fit into the rest of the group. Yeah. Um, which, again, as I say, it's not healthy at all. I don't know. I mean, I... Um... It depends how you define healthy. I asked you earlier, what, what does that mean, the healthy thing? Because you don't seem deeply sad. <laughs> you know? No, I'm not. I'm, a, I'm an optimist. I'm a ridiculous optimist. And that's, why I'm, that's, part of, that's part of my sense of disappointment with, my, with the pressure I put on other people around me. Because I believe, I want to believe that everybody is good and honest and wholesome and motivated by, by, by pure, honest, wholesome things. And that's yeah. unfortunately not the way the world is. Yeah. And there are there are all kinds of people around us and they're never going to live up to the expectations and hopes that I have of them. And which means that I've got a very uh, unhealthy relationship with the concept of trust because I, I think that trust is a fairly black and white thing and I don't think it's shades of grey. And the number of times you meet people and you've known them for not very long and they say, well, do you trust me? And you would say, well, no, I don't actually because I don't know you and because... Uh, I don't, you haven't let me down yet, but it's only a question of time until you do. <laughs> <laughs> so Grateful. 
<laughs> great philosophy. It's quite, but it's, it is again, as I say, it's quite, it's quite self-destructive. So the very, very few people in my life who I would honestly say I trust. Hang on, you just said trust is black and white. Yeah, but you also gave me the impression that trust is yours to lose. But you also made me feel like trust is yours to gain <laughs> and win. Which is it? Is 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 trust mine to lose with you? You know, if you yes. meet somebody. Honestly, yes. So I, it's a sort of it's, not me, not me. I mean, you know, <laughs> not you, no, 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 no. <laughs> you no, other people. Yeah, um, it's a, it's an interesting idea, isn't it? I suppose that I maybe maybe it's a sort of purgatory state that I put people into, <laughs> <laughs> waiting for them yeah. to either disappoint me or they you're get, not in gear. No, <laughs> with they these get, people, they get put in the, in the trust zone or yeah. they get discarded. Yeah, um, I think that's that seems to be quite a. Um, pragmatic way to be you don't have to constantly reassert that they're in purgatory you don't have to tell them they are you just have to be aware in your mind for your own risk assessment Yeah. hang on here but uh, that makes it sound like I'm doing it in some type of intelligent way and protecting myself, the truth is I always want I always expect the best of people, I want people to be happy, I'm very much more like this with the people I, I work with um, they're their performance, I think, is obviously it's very important, but it's not as important as their happiness and contentment with their job, because um, I'm sure most of us didn't choose this life. We would rather be farmers or astronauts or engine drivers or whatever it is that people dream of as being, of being as small children. And yet here we are trapped by the, the walls of our offices, the, the limitations of society, our commute, our mortgages and all those type of things, these constructs around us. Um, so the, the, while you're in that state, while you're at work, you have to be as happy as possible. And I want people to be as happy and fulfilled as possible, as possible within that, the limitations, because that will, that will make them do great work. That'll make them proud of the work they do and yeah. make them do the very best they can and be the very best version of themselves to the, to, to their, when they get home in the evening, when they come in in the morning, when they're doing whatever it is they have to do. And that's really, really important because it's not a rehearsal. And it's yeah. easy to say to people, look, if you're not happy, go and find something else to do. And, of course, people take, when you say that to, <laughs> to people, they take it in the wrong way. But it genuinely is, it comes from a good place. I, I believe that. And I think, I, I think that is a great thing to talk to people about. I think I've said that to people, people in my life, and they either have gone or they've stayed, and they've also readjusted what their definition of happiness is. I would also say a lot of people don't seem to know what they want. No, I think you're absolutely right. And that's really sad. That's really sad because I think it's important that you reflect on that and then strive to try and achieve that, whatever that is. Yeah. But it's... I remember years ago, when I left university, there was a friend of mine who was going to do a gap year, travel the world and then join the army. Got as far as Bali and bought a diving school. Oh, wow. Um, borrowed some money, clubbed together with some other friends and they bought this diving school and I remember seeing him maybe six or seven years later and he was over in the UK for a wedding and we were sitting on bar stools drinking Guinness before this wedding in the home county somewhere and we're talking about this diving school in Bali that he ran and of course I was saying God, it sounds incredible yes yeah. guys gin clear water diving every day it must be wonderful and he shook his head and said it's just a job it's normalized and and I, I said, well, OK, I'm, I don't really accept that. You do... Uh, a, you're not, a on, the, you're not on the ombudsman. No, exactly. <laughs> uh, do, a, do a wet Tuesday in February on the Northern Line and we'll, we'll have a conversation about what, <laughs> what that looks like. Um, but, it, but it's a really interesting yeah. comparison of what we consider to be... That's right. The, the, ...the limitations of our jobs and our lives and all the rest of it and what is happiness and contentment. 
with his, because we'd all look at that and go, that's incredible. Yes. But I don't know what he's doing now. Maybe he's still out there. I, I, if you think about people coming off the back of the war, having experienced the war, to your grandfather's point, and then going into, you know, uh, peacetime, and, and actually prosperity and developments in technology and things like that, gosh, the polarity of life that he's seen. Yeah. Incredible, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, you see, that's... I think that's a really interesting, almost a challenge that we have in Western society at the moment, that we've been through this period of growth and peace for the majority of us, that we don't really have a comparison in our lives. So the expectations that we have as individuals and as a society perhaps are unrealistic. And uh, I think some of the things that we're seeing at the moment within politics and society and culture are troublesome because of that, because of the lack of, um, of grounding in people's expectations. Just the simple, you know, having food on, in our bellies and clothes on our backs and a roof over the head and a sense of, of safety and security in our lives yeah. should be, for the vast majority of the population of the world, that's what they aim for, that's what they hope for. Yeah. But the, we're all so lucky over here that perhaps yeah. we don't reflect on it quite as much as we ought to. Yeah. No, you're dead right. Do you think people broadly then are doing as, uh, the, best, the very best they can in their lives? I think it depends on your life stage. I think generally, yes, because I think that in direct contradiction to my last point, I think that life is quite hard because of the constructs we surround ourselves with. We put ourselves under so much pressure got to get a house so you get a mortgage got to get a job so you've got the limitations around your time got to get new clothes and a car and all these things and we create this this bubble it's often um supported by debt that we then spend the next 30 years paying off in order to retire and i think that you get to a point in your life your trajectory your career and you look around and you perhaps are jealous or perhaps are putting yourself under pressure to do more you look at the you know, whether you're feeding your children enough vegetables, whether you're exercising enough and keeping your cholesterol low and paying down your debts and getting that presentation to the chairman on time and all these other things that are really important. <laughs> and I think it's very easy to judge other people and what they're doing and how they're living their lives. And I think, for the most part, people are just trying to get by. People are trying to do the best they can. People are inherently good, I believe. Yeah. Um, and so I think in general terms I think people are just doing the best they can I don't think it's a good thing I think there's a lot of complexity in our life and society that we benefit from stripping away yeah. but it's, yeah. it's easier to talk about that than it is to actually do it because yeah, really if not is, yeah. this yeah. then what yeah, yeah. and that's the big question and so many times you talk to people and they say oh, I, didn't, you know, I don't really love being a this that and the next thing and you say okay what would you do if you didn't have the limitations that you have what would you do? And then that's when people stop and they don't really know what they'd do. Yeah. And they are, I think the implementation is one of the most difficult things in all of this. So people can talk about ideas, they can convey them, but it's the implementing these ideas into their lives that's the really difficult thing. Yeah. I've become, over the years, more and more a big believer in less talk, just start, do it, start doing something and then we can adapt it as we go through. And then seeing if somebody's capable of changing those, you know, whatever they need to do, whether it's to be creative or to fix something in their life, just um, less talking about. I mean, look, there's good things to come from talking as well. But um, uh, yeah, so um, 
Do you, do you think you have a high level of compassion? I think I do. Uh, How do you define compassion? And does it have a boundary? <laughs> oh, dear me. OK, maybe I don't have a, as high a level of compassion as, I, as I'd like to think. Um, I think I do. I think I've... It depends, it depends how you define it, I suppose, that I suppose it's having a relatively high EQ and being aware, being self-aware of the impact you have on people around you, which, as I've said before, I think I historically haven't been aware or as aware of. And then as I've become more responsible for more people, both at home and in my professional life, yeah. being more attuned to their needs and their uh, sentiments and ensuring that you gear your behaviour and communication more towards reinforcing positives. I think it's difficult, that particular thing about, about reinforcing positives, because it's so contrary to the way that we're supposed to communicate at the moment where you can call people out for failure. You can't even talk about failure. It's areas for development. Uh-huh. And... Um, <laughs> And I think that sometimes it's compassionate to identify where people are going wrong. It's compassionate to say, I don't really think you belong in this job. You're clearly not happy. Yeah. You should go and find something else to do with your life. Yeah. Is it more compassionate to do that, however brutal the truth is, yeah. than it is to in- enable this continuation of I something? I think so. Perhaps. Yeah. But then I'm sure other people would look at that differently. Well, you're looking over different time horizons, aren't you? Yeah. And I think that the long-term time horizon is probably the most beneficial. And I also think that um, if I look at my own life, when someone's correcting me, often a boss, because I, I think I was was definitely very arrogant. I got out of any um, uh, failure to deliver on a promise with humour. And people, you know, seem to like being around me. I don't think I was the best ever employed, but I seem to, you know, I was, unin- you know, I didn't intend to cause harm. <laughs> but if I look back now, I think, God, why do my managers put up with someone like me? And I recognise my behaviours in other people as well. But it always, it, I mean, I hope this is true for a lot of people, but it does catch up with you at some point. You go, oh, yeah, I got perspective now on that language I was using, the way I was thinking. Um, I know what it is now. It didn't come from a place of all-knowing. I was being clever. I was using language to get out of certain thingies. It was being driven by probably laziness that was being driven by fear. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I think I've suffered from that as well. And I think that I... Um, actually, I talked about this in a job interview, which I subsequently got the job for. But I talked about <laughs> my own intellectual arrogance. Um, yeah. And I think it does come... It's almost like bullying behaviour yeah. that I've subsequently recognised in myself. Yeah. That you're... That you, it, it, it's a manifestation of your laziness because you can push people around with your intellect and your words. Um, and it's, it, it's, it, that's something I've become very aware of. And I'm, it, it's a bit embarrassing. It's sort of something that I'm quite ashamed of. Some of the things, some of the situations I've been in where I've, I've, I've behaved badly, um, lazily, and I haven't, I haven't been compassionate. I haven't tempered my, yeah. um, my words or my emotions in order to deliver the outcome that I wanted to deliver and unfortunately in certain situations I've built up a reputation for being effectively a bit of an intellectual bully which means that I've created upset for people because immediately when you start talking to them they're on the defensive because they think that you're beating them up but actually even if you are trying to be compassionate and gentle and deliver a piece of information in 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 a more gentle rounded way 
you've lost them already because of the reputation that you have. Really? That's yeah. interesting. I really can't imagine that of you. Oh, I'm a bastard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's funny. Um, you said um, shame. What's your... Um, you feel ashamed of that. What's your relationship with sh- shame in your life? And, and by the way, how did you define shame before we even jump into it? What's your definition of it? I think it's... it's uh... I suppose it's reflecting on things that you could have or should have done differently or better. So perhaps they're not... When you haven't done... You haven't been the best version of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Something that you have had control over and because of laziness or arrogance or another negative uh, emotion or driving force, you have failed to deliver that. Um... You, you could have done better, but you chose you could have not done to. Better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, and it's, um, uh, it's. So the year after I did my first Ironman event, I did the ATAP, and the what? Sorry, the, the... ATAP. It's uh, where you can do it, one of the t- stages of the Tour de France. Oh right. Uh, it's like a public event. Wow. And um, it was uh, I can't remember over the the Tourmalet in the Pyrenees. It was a big climb, one of the most famous climbs on the on the tour, and then up another mountain afterwards. And it was, so it would have been June, July time, and it was 20 degrees in the valley, and it was snowing on the top of the Tourmalet. And I didn't have any of the right kits. I'd had a crash on my bike a week before. Um, I had a, some other injury. Oh, I had a chest infection at the time. And I got to the top of the Tourmalet, and I was broken. And they closed the mountain because there were so many casualties and all the rest of it. But the truth is, I was done. And a bus came and picked us up, and you put all the bikes in the trailer of the bus. And there was a lot of people, hundreds of people. Who, yeah. And I'm ashamed of that. No. Yeah, seriously. Why? Because, <laughs> because I, 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 I wasn't in a, step, a fit state to compete, uh, frankly. And um, so I sort of set myself up for failure in the first place. I hadn't bought the right kits. I went to the village beforehand. <laughs> cycling kits, so expensive. You think, oh, I'll blag it, I'll be fine. Um, and the idea of not completing the attack, even now, and that was in 2014, five years later. Really? Still, yeah, absolutely. So, so, so you're ashamed you didn't prepare properly? That's something. No, I'm ashamed I failed. I'm ashamed I You prepared. can't lump it into one big thing. No, I, I can, I do. I, I, the, the, because the, I suppose that I've always felt that if you commit to something, you need to follow through on it, you need to achieve it. And it's something that I, yeah, it's, it, it scrunches me up. Wow. One. I must, there must be other examples that I'm ashamed of, but I can't think of any right now. <laughs> okay, cool. So, um, but it's to do with that. That all goes back to the whole perfectionism and putting other people yeah, on, on was... pedestals and all of those type of things. Um, and the desire to be the best version of myself. And, yeah, it's a... It, I see that as, as a failure. So if somebody... So let's say I, I was with you and I equally didn't prepare. I was in some Bermuda shorts or whatever you were wearing. <laughs> um, and I said, oh, my, don't, don't worry, we'll jump on the bus with everyone else. Let everyone else has messed it up as well. Um, what would you think of me? I wouldn't think anything of you. I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't you would go, your thoughts and your measures yeah, are your own, absolutely. Ben. Absolutely. In fact... You if, wouldn't be jealous that I could feel so great about it? If you were, if you were suffering, as I was suffering at the time, yeah. and as much pain as I was yeah. at the time, I'd probably be saying to you, Ben, stop. This is not going to do you any good I'm at all. I'm just going to do another 10 metres. There's no, there's no <laughs> sense of shame. I'd be saying there's no shame in, in pulling out now. 
because my measures of success for you are entirely different. I'm not saying that I, I'm, they're lower than mine. It's just that I think that I'm able to reflect on what's sensible for other people a bit more than myself. It's, it's insane. This whole perfectionism thing is bonkers. It's, it's I'm going to leave this and I'm going <laughs> to completely reassess my life. No, I, I, I don't know. It seems to be the push and pull seems to be working for you. <coughs> you know, I don't necessarily think it needs to change. I think it's really interesting, the insight, though. You know, from the outside, seeing how somebody operates, you come across very calm, very happy and content and all the rest of it. It's lucky my wife's not in the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you only see one side of the room. Yeah, she's just saying that I'm up and down like a yo-yo. Really? I think so, because the yin and yang thing, I think that's, that's part of the issue, is that spectrum. Um, it's so broad. I'm, I suppose I would describe it if I was trying to be make it positive or romantic. I'd say I'm a very passionate individual. So I have a very bad temper, which I've managed to temper over the years. I very rarely lose my temper, but I'm capable of great joy. And um, yeah. uh, when I was doing psychometric test assessments for my current job, one of the things that came out were very highly is, is hedonism. And at the oh. time, I remember reading it and thinking, hedonism, that sounds a bit Ibiza. And yeah. the chap said, no, 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 it's, not, it's about being happy. It's about yeah. wanting to surround yourself with joy and happiness in the workplace. And that's very much part of it. I want to be as happy as possible. Yeah. Because I recognise this very broad spectrum of my emotions. And inevitably, I want to be at the positive end all the time. Yeah. And, 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 and take pleasure in the simple joy of watching the sun come up in the morning um, when I have the opportunity to do so. But also, as I said before, making sure the people around me are happy and fulfilled and, and got what they want. So if I could... Um, is, if we go to, like, quick little scenes of happiness in your life, one is you can, you know, you turn up to the door and then you knock, 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 and everyone suddenly becomes aware you're there and there's this kind of rush of, of noise and feet and all the rest of it. You yeah. know what that feeling is. What's, give me another place you go to, to for to experience either self-medication or that hedonism thing. Train, training, so uh, particularly running and cycling. I swim as well, um, and I do bits of yoga and that kind of thing, but being out on the bike first thing in the morning yeah. um, when the sun's coming up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, just a, it's like, very much like playing golf when you have those very few moments where you can hit the ball sweetly, which for me, <laughs> very rarely, because I play golf very rarely and I'm very bad at it. But just there's a moment when you ride, when everything's working in perfect synergy, the pedals are turning perfectly, the tarmac's perfect, yeah. your cadence is perfect, you're breathing, your heart rate, and there's a moment where it's effortless. Yeah. And the temperature of the air, and you yeah. can, it's almost like an out-of-body experience, and you only, it only needs to happen once every so often, not even every single ride, just where you're free, because yeah. it, it frees you from all of the constraints of life. And that's that moment of just effortless perfection that's joy oh that's nice and I think again I, I, I'm very aware of the of the um, of the impact of um, of the training has me when I don't train when I don't exercise I'm a pain in the arse absolutely grumpy yeah um, and I have to go out and do stuff I have to run I have to bike and it's caused a certain amount of tension uh, over the years because when I've been training towards a big event um and I've been, it, it's, I've been terribly selfish about it. In, in retrospect, at the time, I felt it was completely reasonable to get up at 4.30 in the morning and go and sit on the turbo trainer in the spare room on my bike. What's a turbo trainer? It's like a, a static trainer that you clamp your back wheel onto. Oh, yeah. Um, at the back wheel of your bike. Yeah. And it, it, it provides friction against the back wheel. 
so you can adjust the friction oh, yeah, and you yeah, can train. Yeah. So I would get up at 4.30 in the morning and do an hour, hour and a half on the bike yeah. before the day started, and that was completely normal at the time. Wow. And only in retrospect, talking to my wife, and she's like, she seriously, <laughs> very, <laughs> very selfish. It was very, very difficult for me and the children and all the rest of it. Why was it? They were all in bed. Uh, sorry. But I think that I was, because I'd go out for long runs and long swims. And, oh, sorry, the whole period the whole, of training. Yeah. Got it, sorry. I thought you meant that just isolated morning. But okay. the, the endorphins and um, all the things that come with it, now I'm in a, at a point where I have to try and fit those into my life and I'm trying yeah. to actually block sections out of my calendar during my day yeah. so I can go out for a run because I know the positive impact it has on my yeah. psychological well-being. Yeah. Um, and... I, also, I was very, I was very overweight for a while. I was 18 stone and um, very unhappy. And I got when home. When was that? Uh, I probably peaked in about. Um, when was my son born? 2004. My first son was born. Probably about then, 2003. In your 30s. Yeah. Early um, 30s. Early 30s. And I think it's been. It was a uh, coming to London, working with all of the. At the time, of course, a lot of booze nothing else going on really just drinking and partying and having a good time and I got home from work one night and my wife said to me why are you so angry all the time oh no yeah well that's exactly the reaction I had <laughs> and uh, and it really rocked me it really why are you so angry me. what why how are you displaying anger I think the job I was in was very destructive I had a, a boss who was a bully um, and I was trapped very much so by circumstances in life and I think when you have your first child, again, the pressures of life. You know, it's, it's a busy time. It's very challenging. And they don't come with a manual, unfortunately, babies. So There's plenty of books written about them, though. <laughs> they're not. They're, yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, anyway, so I joined a gym, and it became... It sort of took over my life. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, it unlocked it. It was healthy. Yeah. yeah. Everyone around you is... I imagine good people. Like, there's some fun people in a pub, but you wouldn't want to see them at 9am, necessarily. You know? No, Exactly. And so it is, it fundamentally comes from a good place. So I lost four stone, yeah. and uh, it probably became a bit of an, obs- not an obsession, obsession, but because I know people who are far more obsessed. Um, yeah, you, you always will, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Look at that person competing you know, on stage, you, yeah. know, for, you know, you can always point to somebody. It sounds like you're quite obsessed with lots of things you take, undertake, right? Um, I don't mean that in a pernicious way. I mean, it sounds like you're properly committed. Uh, I'd like to think that I'm fairly balanced about it. I'd like, I like to be able to participate. I think fundamentally I'm a coward because I'm so scared of failure. So in the early part of my life, I would not do things rather than risk failure. Oh. And... Um, so you wouldn't participate? Yeah, so exactly, I wouldn't participate. Oh, I can't do that thing because I've... Oh, my shoulder. And I realised how much... I, I was missing out on. And now I want to be able to participate in everything. I don't want my fear to define me. So I used to be terrified of public speaking. Yeah. Absolutely terrified. And so when I started doing that, I, I got to the point where I just literally confronted my fear and said, no, I'm going to go and stand on stage and I'm going to do it. How old? Oh, probably, it was probably 10 years ago. No so, way. Yeah. I thought you did this like in your 20s or something. No, 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 no. I've been a coward for most of the time. <laughs> Seriously. I've been an angry coward. Yeah, I'm an angry coward. No, not anymore. I used to be an angry coward. Now I'm, now I'm much more reflective. Um, and so the, the, the tr- so the training and the exercise is part of that. Now if somebody came to me and said, you know, do you want to go mountain biking or running, running up a mountain? Or my children want to play frisbee in the park. 
I want to be able to participate. Yeah. I want to be able to try and do everything. Yeah. And um, uh, and I'm less less worried about being made to look like a fool, uh, or and because I think part of, having children is a big leveler in that respect because they think you're just the uh, fool. The fool. <laughs> and that's part you have to accept. Silly that. daddy. Exactly. Exactly. You've met my children. You. <laughs> um, and. Uh, it, but again, it's incredibly liberating once you let go of all that angst. Right. That you can just be yourself. Yeah. And you can uh, you can accept you can you can mock yourself because it's it's almost it's almost a a way to overcome taking yourself too seriously because if you if you're the first person to mock yourself, yeah. you've already disarmed everybody around totally. you. Totally. Yeah. But it took me well, as soon as you said a cow, you, you're a coward. Did you see the big smile that came on my face. I yeah. was like, great. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it's true. You, but why not? Why not be honest about it? Yeah. Uh, and, and just say this is the way I am. And, yeah. And then once you do things, once you decide to to confront your fear, and but to say, do you know what? I'm doing this. I'm a coward, everybody. But I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. And who, you know, there's that thing. There's no. There's no courage without fear. Right. And that's sort of what I'm. I'm not. Again, these things sound like they're they're contrived or constructed and they're not it's just part of the journey that i'm on yeah sure um no that, that that's completely sounds right i think yeah. um and also i think that empathy with other people you know if you've got to be able to if you do believe everyone's doing the best they can and you're like listen i know you're probably doing the best you can i bet you're probably also really scared as well and no matter who you're sitting opposite and how impressive they may seem you've got to it's it's a, it's a coping mechanism almost in, in two ways, it kind of it, it enables you the freedom to be yourself and go. You know, neither one of us is, is better than the other. That concept doesn't exist. You know, um, and you know, if you're not going to give me some of that kind of thing, in some ways, you're just jailing yourself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it does free you when you when you are open and honest about your feelings. Basically, vulnerability is what I'm talking about, right? So yes. Vulnerability unlocks you, I think, and it gives you a massive platform for kind of happiness and connection with people. Yes, I think so. I, I think um, I think it's. It, I, I suppose I sometimes struggle to reconcile uh, vulnerability with the inevitable realization that my children, for example, are going to have a certain point of view about me. Which, if I reflect on my own sentiments about hierarchical relationships that I had with members of my own family, I putting them on pedestals, my children naturally are going to think that I'm some type of hero because most children do. They, yeah. they think their parents you are. You did? Yeah, and I think people do. Children do. So, balancing that vulnerability with um, being wise and... Um, and guiding them, but in allowing them to make mistakes at the same time. Being a figure of authority, but also a figure of fun. Yeah. And knowing how to, to maintain that balance so that they do go to bed when you tell them to go to bed. Yeah. But at the same time, yeah, they know that they can probably get me to, get me to read them another chapter of the story if they just muck around a little bit, because they know that I want to hear it too. And because to your point, <laughs> I'm silly daddy. You know, where do you, where do you draw that line? And I think that's the... You know, that's the magic of it, really. Yeah. Yeah, that is. That sounds like a fun balance to have to try and strive for. Yeah. Strong but gentle is like what you're kind of, you, you seem to say there as well. Yeah. I get it. It makes it sound like it's something that I've constructed. I don't know. I, 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 but we are constructing things. Yeah, I suppose so. We're constructing things all, all day long. It's just, it's not a falsity, is it? It's like... 
you're, con you're constructing these ideas and you know you're reflecting on them day by day even even if somebody comes up so this is why i think is really funny sometimes people might have read something like I, I read um uh, there's a fantastic woman i can't remember her bloody name and uh, it was last night she um she talked about um compassion and vulnerability but i've just co-opted those as my own now <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't matter because um you react to them as if they're true as if i've been thinking about them whatever for ages and I then get to think about it myself in my own time about it. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't really matter yeah. in that moment. Like, I am... Um, yeah, I don't really think that's too much of an issue. I think people, like you say, over the course of your life, it all becomes true. It all becomes... It all... You know, all the judgments are removed yeah, in some ways. As, as long as you... I suppose that thinking about all of this stuff and reflecting on it all now, it... it what I suppose what really drives me is the, is the striving for joy. Yeah. And... Um, in everything, because ultimately that's that's what, what should matter. You should be as happy as you can be at any one particular moment within the within the context of that particular moment, um, and everything else is trying to distract you from that simple goal. And I don't know. I, I think that recently, perhaps me personally, I've been too distracted and haven't accepted the simple things for what they are and put myself under too much pressure because I'm thinking about too many other things, which are all distractions. I'm not quite sure the point I'm trying to get to here, but I think that's the, that's the kernel of it, is the, is the striving for joy. Yeah. No, I like that. What's the most powerful effect you think you can have on another person? Wow, that's tough. My instinct was to say to love them. Um... Yeah, but how does that manifest itself? I think... It's a, it's a, you know, the risk of, I don't want you to, know, without being flippant about it, it's about, it's about respect and um, empowerment and enabling and support. Um, what was the question again? What's the most powerful effect you think you can have? I think it's all of those things, because it does. It, it comes into appreciation and respect, and, and making people feel valued. Um, and celebrating their success. I'm trying to. I'm trying to think of it in the context of my home life and my professional life. I can see you reconciling it. Yeah. Because ultimately, you. You know, when you're um, helping your children do something. You want them to achieve whatever that is on their own. You don't want to grab a pencil off them or... Do uh, it like this. Yeah, exactly. You want, to, you want to tell them what's great about it. And it's similar in your work life. You want to enable people around you, make them feel good about themselves, about the work that they're doing, their idea that they've just had. Even if it's a crap idea, you want to support the fact that they've had an idea and help them help direct their thinking towards the next thing. Similarly, yeah, yeah. you know, whatever it is that they're... I'm trying to think about how do you articulate this in as broad terms possible. Um, so it's about helping them achieve self-actualisation, isn't it? Um, it sounds... Oh, the word understanding seems to come into it. Like, you give them understanding, you know, give them... That's the same as the support, you know. 
maybe. Because yeah. you can't do these things for them. So no. you have to support them. There was, um, it was almost a, it, there was an exercise I did a few years ago in a, in a, in a, um, uh, a two-day workshop, and it was the chap who was running the, the, uh, the workshop, a chap called Nicholas Bates, who's a fantastic writer and, uh, and trainer. Um, and the course is called... Um, I can't remember what it's called now. Um, but anyway, he, he said, he said uh, who in the room would like to write a book? And 30 hands went up, of course. And he said, why haven't you written a book? And everyone said... Were you in the room? Not enough time, yes. Did you put your hand up? I did. Um, the course is called Personal Excellence, that's it. And um, he said, I'll never accept that not having enough time is a reason not to write a book. If it's important to you, you find the time. And he broke us all into little groups of three, gave us a workbook, and we had to spend ten minutes writing fiction. And Was his answer, you don't want it enough? No, he said, it's just, you've got to find the time, you've got to find a structure. Oh, structure. It was, it was about, the whole course is about finding structures to help you do things. Oh, right. And he was using this example um, to show that if you want to write, you need to find a system, a structure, in order to do it. So you write a thousand words a day, for example. Yeah, yeah. And in, by, after six months, you'll have an awful lot of words. Yeah. Now, he, the point he's making is that it becomes habitual, and that you'll write a lot of crap, but in the end... Because it's become habitual, then you can structure your thinking and articulate your narrative. So we all sat yeah. there, and in little groups of three, and we spent ten minutes writing fiction, and once in a while he threw out a question or a sentence or something to help stimulate creativity. And then we each, in our groups of three, read our prose to the other two members of the group, and they had to say what they liked about it. Oh, yeah, just liked. Just what yeah. they liked. Okay, yeah. And it was incredible what, was, what people did in that ten minutes, and it absolutely debunked anyone's uh, questions or excuses about why they didn't write books. Oh, it wow. proved that everyone in the room had achieved an ex- what they could, didn't think they could achieve in just ten minutes because they'd, done, they'd had the discipline of writing for ten minutes. But it was the enabling question, what did you like about that, which was so positive. Yeah. It, was, it, it reinforced the process, it reinforced the individual... And it empowered people to try a bit more. Now, what I'd like to say is, as a consequence of that, I went off and I wrote a thousand words a day for six months. That's all we're interviewing here. (laughs) None of which happened. (laughs) No. So it's one of No, that's great. It sounds like you wanted to give that to other people. Absolutely. Yeah. When I came back from that course, because the first course, the first segment of the course was actually about um, remembering random objects. And uh, he spent the first 45 minutes telling us about there's a guy in Ireland who's the world champion random memory guy yeah and he's got a structure yeah how he remembers random objects and so he spent the first 45 minutes teaching us the structure of how to remember random objects is that like when you take your journey to work and on the way you visit these things no it's sort of like that but you would ascribe pegs yeah uh, so if you've got uh, items one to 20 rather than it being item one the first one is the sun and the second one is a pair of eyes and the third one is a triangle see i can remember it <laughs> so if the first item is a table, you think you make a mental association between the sun and a table, the sunlight shining on a table. Yeah. And so it has a, it's sort of the same. It's, it's a, a visual 3D yeah. world that you place these things into or something. And I got home that night and I was like, oh my goodness, everybody, that I learned this amazing thing today. So I sat the children down and I taught them this, this yeah. system. And we then put it to the test because my wife needed to go shopping. And we said, no, no, we'll go shopping for you. We're not going to take <laughs> the shopping the room list. Stuff. <laughs> no, we didn't. We, we, we assigned pegs to all of the different items on the shopping list, went to the supermarket and bought it all without the shopping list. 
using this system. And it was great. <laughs> That's really cool. It was really good fun, and it really proved that it worked. I'm sure I can't remember any of the pegs now, but it was that kind of thing. I yeah. love. I love thinking about things differently and being challenged, and then take, making it real world. Yeah, 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 totally. Just for the record, we did this with my mum. I found the video literally three days ago. I taught her pie to 20 places. Really? And it was you come out of, you wake up in the morning. And it's like you go through uh, one door to the bathroom and then uh, you pick up four hair pegs to, to put your hair up. Then you have your shower, you have one shower. And then, it was, and then you get the so-and-so bus. And by the end of it, she had the last eight digits in about two seconds. Really? Because she knew it was couples of digits. I get on the 78, I get there at uh, 690, uh, whatever it is, you know what I mean? That's going to be really useful to her because, you know, I'm sure your mother needs to know hi to <laughs> 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 Completely. She's, yeah, she's a, a PA to a CFO. Yeah. So, yeah, she's not going to... Well, think you know, like, next pub quiz. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, no, that's... So, yeah, definitely... Do you, do you find it kind of like, you know, a real a positive kickback from... Because I think you could have been a teacher or something. No, don't say that. You bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I a teacher. You know, you, you've got all the all the qualities that a memorable teacher would have. Thank do you know what I mean? That's a, that a is compliment. a compliment. Yeah, that's that's genuinely so a compliment, much. you know. Um... But do you did you never consider going to things like teaching? No. God, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with teaching? Well, they say, what is that whole, you know, people who can do and people who can't teach? Oh, that's terrible. It is. It is awful, but it's... Uh, you, could, you could be like a faculty head. I you know, you could. faculty head. I want to know because I want to change the world. Um, these people can do that, They though. can, but they don't see the fruits of their labour, do they? Because they're empowering other people to go and do it rather than doing it themselves. And, Selfish. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. Yes, of course. But going back to my, I want to see the, I want to see my work on the wall, and I want to feel the room full of people going, "Oh my goodness, that's amazing." He, as part of that team of people, have have done what we wanted. They fulfilled our hopes and dreams. And I think as a teacher, you're not going to have that satisfaction. I can see the value of it. I take a point, and it's a, it's, I'll take it as a compliment, grudgingly. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned something. I've just seen the angry side of you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. Teaching, wow. I honestly met that with one of the, the some of the, my favourite people in the world. Are like you know either heads of departments or teachers or now heads of schools, like really? my old. Yeah, you actually remind me of um, <laughs> my, <laughs> my old rugby history geography teacher, um, and he's now the head of the whole school. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had all the same qualities. He was yeah. The qualities I thought you had. <laughs> um, where does your self-worth come from? Um, some of the things we've talked about, I think. Um, Is it the creative stuff? Because you, you brought that up about, you know, having an emotional impact on people and go, look, we've created for completely. you. Yeah. Oh, completely. It, it's a, in, in a professional sense, Absolutely. And I think it's... Uh, but why do you make that distinction of professional? Like, I, I, is I, it... I, I, not deliberately, but over my life, I, I do keep my work and my home life quite separate from one another. Yeah. You know, people bring their kids to work on Bring Your Kids to Work Day. Um, when I worked at BBC Worldwide, we had a sort of Christmas Bring Your Kids to Work Day with Teletubbies and... You just brought your bike? Uh, yeah, basically. And I would never have dreamt of bringing my children to, to work, simply because... It, that, it was the BBC. Well, <laughs> yeah. Um, unless I can give them a PowerPoint presentation to work on. I mean, what's the point? Um, I don't... I've always... I, I suppose maybe I'm quite private in that sense. Uh, 
that, that, that I want to keep that for myself. I'm very protective of my family unit, the, the six of us. Yeah. We, we're, on, we're a little team, and we do stuff together. You're more than a team. Yeah, I'm well... A squadron. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Um, but the... Uh, I'm... I suppose that I've, you know, it reflects all on things like perfectionism and, and all the rest of it, that I feel very strongly that the advertising and media industry, marketing in general, could and should be much better than it is. And I think particularly at the moment, because we're enslaved to, the, to the, this false idol of data, that creativity particularly has been forgotten almost. And um, the truth is that some of the stuff we've, talk, we've been talking about, art, music, Creativity has the power to move people. Yeah. There are pieces of great advertising which can make people laugh or cry. Yeah. Well, they used to be. I haven't seen any for many years because there isn't the same uh, celebration of creativity that there used to be in, yeah. in the marketing industry. Um, but that, for me, I think the ability to move people, yeah. and that can be done through great, great art, great creative work, I think is something that in my professional life it yeah. defines my self-worth. I, I, yeah, talking about where those two come together, that, a commercial thing by just pushing... It could be an awareness of a brand, a meaningful brand or charity, and, and that kind of art, artistry. If I think of the... What was the last time you cried at an advert? Um, that's a good question. I have to think about that. I mean, I get angry at, at a lot of <laughs> creative work at the moment because I think a lot of it's so lazy and it's clearly driven by committees and it's so compromised than driven by any, any pure yeah. desire to move people. And I think a lot of that's driven by the um, economic and technological environment that we find ourselves in, because the economy now d demands accountability in advertising, and technology creates the illusion of accountability yeah. in advertising. So the idea of a chief marketing officer going and pitching for $10 million from the CFO and the CEO in order to create long-term brand preference... Yeah. it's going to be a much, much harder argument to make because people are so short-termist in their views of success and they're under so much pressure to deliver short-term success on the balance sheet. Um, do you remember the, the Cadbury's ad with the gorilla uh, playing yeah. the drums? Phil I can't Collins. imagine yeah. how that was pitched at the time. And you have to admire, in my head, this, this incredible account director and creative team pitching that to somebody at Cadbury yeah. and saying, no, 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 seriously, this... People are going to talk about this tomorrow. This is incredible. I, I, it was in, I was in, would have been in school when that, or college when that came out? When I was that? I don't know how old you are, so... I'm 39. <laughs> you may have been. It was, I remember there was a, uh, an edit of it in the 2003 Rugby World Cup. Um, when was that? 90? 2003. Oh, 2003. Sorry. <laughs> when was 2003? Was that in the 90s? Um, um, oh, God. I, I remember I mean? people talking about it the next day. Have yeah. you seen that advert? Exactly. And that's what I'm talking about, the, the, the ability to move people. Now, I've no idea how successful that was uh, as a piece of um, yeah. lateral that drove some type of measurable outcome yeah. for, for Cadbury's. But, but it was driven by something deeper than exactly that. It wasn't, no one said at the time, well, how many bars of chocolate are we going to sell as a result of yeah. the gorilla playing drums? Yeah. Um, that uh, feels like joy. That exactly, advert. exactly, but that's my point. And... And then I think that's what's lacking from a lot of the industry at the moment. And I think, funnily enough, you know, this is a bit of a, a, a clumsy segue, forgive me, but um, looking at the world of asset management particularly, when I think about why people invest, yeah. they're doing it because it's going to enable them to do something later in life. So from a certain point of view, you could spin a beautiful, creative 
narrative around the creation of dreams yeah. and the enablement of dreams. But when you look at how asset management, how asset management as a sector treats its customers uh, or its prospects, it, they're hitting them with a stick. It's so yeah. blunt. Yeah. And so, yeah. um, and if you compare it to autos, they're talking about the amazing headlamps and the, yeah. the, the, the really nice wing mirrors. They're not talking about how it makes you feel yeah. or how it might make you feel at some point later in your life. I think Norwich Union or Aviva, Aviva did some things on this, didn't they? Did they? There was an amazing one which was like um, the girl. I mean, I think I feel teary thinking about it. It was beautiful acoustic female vocalists and it was about a young woman growing up from being her dad's young girl to going to university to get married. Yeah. Do you remember that one? No. And it fl- she, every everything like she walks through a door, she comes out the other door, she's married. It goes, ah, okay. you remember the one and then and then does ring a bell, she, yes. she bends down at the kitchen table as she comes up, there's a kid or a baby or yep. something like that, you know. And you're like, wow, 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 baby and suddenly they're old people. And they're yeah. looking at their own grandchildren. Yes. And it just gave you goosebumps. You're like, oh, my God, this is beautiful. Life well, is... Volvo have done some really nice work recently. Really? That's similar type of yeah. uh, creative strand, which is looking at the individual and life and in, uh, as a facilitator of your life rather than the vehicle itself. Yeah. But, again, it, it takes a huge amount of bravery to do that. Yeah, and, yeah. And trust. Well, I don't know if that's true. Is that true, then? Is what true? What you just, what you, do you find a lot of people going, nah, I don't get it? <laughs> you, know, it you, you, you know, you've worked in branding and advertising. Do you, the people you're pitching to, do they often go, nah, when it's an emotive, you know, a disconnected uh, storyline, when it's not, like, got the headlamps in? Absolutely, because I think that the, um, the rationale for the advertising, the collateral stuff, it has to work so much harder... So much work has to work in a digital space, which means it's measured by you know, click-through rates or costs per lead or viewability or those type of blunt metrics, which take you down a different route because then you are trying to empirically measure the success of the creative work rather than just allowing the creative work to flourish and move people. Yeah. Um, because you need to drive short-term metrics because, as I said, the economic yeah. environment we find ourselves in, is it an indulgence to, in, to uh, invest in... In brand marketing at the moment, yeah. I would argue not. Um, I think it's an abs- absolutely essential, but justifying it on a on a balance sheet is much more yeah. challenging. There's an advert I remember. I don't know if you've seen this one. This one is I could watch it even now, burst into tears. It's it's beautiful. It's got it, it brings in to a um, recording studio, like a soundstage, black soundstage. They've got all the lights, everything, and they're, they're showing you they're filming these people, and they bring in twenty, thirty, forty year olds, and they say, "Okay, uh, we're just going to do some stuff. Would you do me a favor? Just just throw." Uh, a ball, like, a, oh, you want me to throw an imaginary ball? Yeah, yeah, throw an imaginary ball. Okay, right, fine. And now just run on the spot. And they go, now do it like a girl. Like, just run like a girl. And even the women go, oh, silly, silly, <laughs> girly run, right? Yeah. Or like, um, and, uh, you know, um, if you're tired and you're a girl, do a, do a tired girl running races, oh, flopping over, all this kind of stuff. And then this is a really sad bit. Then they bring in eight-year-olds and the boys do this, run, okay, run, run. And they go to the girls, like, now run like a girl. And the girls just run just as hard. And the boys, now run like a girl to the boys. Just run. Just, they don't see all that stuff. We learn all that horrible, you know, uh, distinction later on in life. 
and that you know that um, something that gives you a different viewpoint and makes you empathize with something you've never seen in that framework and that then moves you yes that's like so powerful yeah. I mean, it was one of the most powerful adverts I've seen I just shared it with as many people as possible especially my sister like oh my god because really? she, she's a big advocate of this kind of thing she was you know an athlete and um, was a very anti you know that kind of how women can be treated in a second class citizen type I'll way have to look that you know? out. yeah you will love it it's really really good I've thought the, the, I think the, the ad that, that probably moved me the most recently is a couple of years ago now but it was actually um, it was called The Taste of Love it was actually by Noor and they oh, yeah. worked with Watson yeah okay uh, the IBM AI machine. Yeah. And they discovered that um, that people are attracted by similar olfactory senses. And so they, uh, they conducted the research, I think, across 14 markets. And they brought together two strangers who had tested for similar tastes in food. Oh, nice. So they filmed these two strangers coming together. Yeah. And they had covered the table with foods that both of these people had measured the same on. Yeah. And they had to feed each other, oh. these two strangers. And it's beautiful. Really? Because they arrive they're, and they're like, oh my goodness me, this is all This is my favourite stuff. And the other person does as well. And there's a, it's a really, I mean, clearly it's edited in a certain way. Yeah. Film, but it's actually quite a beautiful <laughs> connection. <laughs> it's a little bit more um, emotive than that. But seriously, it's fantastic. And it's because, it, again, it challenges your perceptions about. Um, the nature of love and connection, yeah. this type of thing. The fact that it's nor, and I, sure. at no point that I think oh, it's packet soups or anything like that. Yeah, it's uh, it's really special. Yeah, it's a really beautiful film. And again, I, I, that was driven by something much deeper and much more intelligent and much more challenging yeah. than how many more packets of soup do we need to sell? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. We've gone over time again. Um, thank you so much. I really want to do a follow-up one later in the year. Okay. Yeah. When I've, when I've finished my therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Are you still angry, man? <laughs> no, that's great. Thank you so much for coming in, Guy. No, thank you for having me. It's been uh, interesting, I think. I'm, sure, I'm going to worry for the rest of the day about this. <laughs> I'm sure you will. Thank Take you care. Very much. Thank you.